I think it would be good if, as one of the visitors uh, at this conference weekend, if you would allow me, please, on behalf of all the visitors, just to say a very, very sincere thank you to the dear saints at Midland Park. Uh, I can't begin to imagine the amount of time and effort and planning and worry, perhaps, that has gone into all the arrangements, which certainly from uh, my viewpoint seem to have gone absolutely famously. As they say, when the duck is in the middle of the lake, gliding along serenely, you don't see the feet paddling furiously below the surface. And uh, we're conscious, too, that many of the sisters, probably some of the brethren, have actually devoted their time to our comfort and have missed the meetings themselves. Um, so, if you don't mind me just saying so on behalf of the visitors, a very, very sincere thank you to the dear saints at Midland Park for all your great kindness, and a big thanks to Brother Dave T. for the location for a great sing last night as well. Thank you very much in the Lord's name. These things do not go unnoticed in heaven. I'm absolutely certain that all that has been done from the smallest menial task that none of us have seen Everyone has been meticulously recorded in heaven and has been registered for reward in a day to come because the Lord is no man's debtor. Many thanks indeed. Now, uh, Brother David Hamilton very kindly this time gave me first choice of the questions and lest it be thought that I was in any way trying to, what's the biblical term? Stitch up my dear brother Stephen... Uh, I didn't look at any of them. I just took the first one. And I read it three or four minutes ago with Stephen, so you'll forgive me if the answer's not exhaustive. Um, I'm going to answer it first and then go on with the ministry. The question is, in John 17, when the Lord says he's finished the work, is he talking about the work of revealing the Father, which he mentions throughout the Gospel account to that point? Right, so the question obviously involves that lovely, one of the seven sayings from the cross, uh, recorded in John 17, finished. Uh, if I were taking it up in ministry, the way I might take it up is like this. That, first of all, as a background, whenever a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament, there were many different sacrifices, many different purposes, many different variations upon them, but there were certain things that were common to all. You had to have an offerer. You had to have the offering itself, and there must be a priest who officiated at the altar. That was common to every sacrifice. You had to have the offerer, the offering, and the priest who officiated. Now, in John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus uh, lifts his voice to the Father in prayer, and he says, Father, I have glorified thee here on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. In John chapter 19, the Lord again lifts his voice, as those hours of darkness dispersed, and with a loud voice he cried, finished. So something else was finished. Something was finished in John 17. Something was finished in John 19. 
And then something else is finished in Hebrews chapter 10. Because every priest standeth daily ministering, and ministering oftentimes those same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Now, the way it suggests itself to me, and the way in which I would enjoy it is this, that in John chapter 17, the Lord is speaking as the offerer. He's about to offer himself. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. He's the offerer. And the prime responsibility of the offerer was to see that he brought to the altar the very best. Nothing else would do. In fact, as you know, in the Old Testament, God often used his prophets to remonstrate with his people as to the uh, kind of offerings they were bringing. Remember what Haggai rebuked the people for? Uh, and said, now, the kind of offerings you're bringing to God, the, the halt and the maim and the blind, he says, take those things to your governor and see if he'd be pleased with them. You bring to God the very best. Now we have a blessed man in John 17. His public ministry was finished in chapter 12. Chapters 13 through 16, the upper room ministry and a ministry I judge on the way down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now in chapter 17, he's in the sanctuary alone with the Father. And the cross and its shadow are looming o'er him. And there was a man on earth who could lift his eyes heavenward and say, Father, I have glorified thee here on the earth. I finished the work thou gavest me to do. There was a work the Father had given him to do, which was to glorify him here on the earth. And had there been anything wanting in that ministry, or had there been anything lacking, or anything that ought not to have been there, his fitness for the altar would be in question. But thank God there was a man who could review every word, every deed, every thought, and every motive. And as he reviewed the whole of his life, public and private, he could commend himself to the Father and say, I have glorified thee here on the earth. I'm bringing the very best to the altar. In John 19, when he said it's finished, he's speaking as the offering. Not the offerer, but the offering. And in those awful hours of darkness, as Peter would word it concerning the Lord Jesus, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And somehow, somehow God condensed into three terrible hours the full weight of eternal judgment that was due to me and that was due to you. And he didn't spare him. And he didn't mitigate it. And God condensed that awful judgment into those dark hours. And he punished Punish that blessed man instead of punishing me. And thank God, when every one of those last waves and billows of divine judgment had gone over his spotless soul, when the last of it was done, with a loud voice, your Savior and mine could cry, Finished! It's all dealt with. You need never fear that your sins will arise before God again. 
Clearly, he hadn't gone into death yet. He was about to. He was about to commit his spirit into the hands of his father and bow his head and die. He was going to go into death to defeat death. He was going to go into death to defeat sin. But in those hours of darkness, he suffered for your sins and for mine. Finished. He was speaking as the offering. And he's unique in that he was the only offering that ever came to an altar intelligent as to why he was there. No other offering did. A goat, a bullock, a sheep, whatever it might be, it was brought to the altar and it was slain. It was completely unintelligent as to the part it would play. And in any case, it was not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Here was a willing victim. He went to the cross. And as the hymn writer said, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore that burden on Calvary and suffered and died. Sometimes when the brethren read Psalm 69, they omit verse 5. They say that can't refer to the Lord Jesus. The cry goes up, thou knowest my sins, my perversity, thou knowest mine iniquity, it's not hid from thee. And they say that can't possibly refer to the Lord Jesus in this messianic psalm, for he was sinless. But it does refer to him. And the iniquity and the guilt and the perversity that he is confessing as his own is mine and yours. It has to be that way. We were talking over breakfast of the fact that there is no scripture that in any way detracts from the completely voluntary character of the sacrifice of Christ. If, if there was any question about the voluntary nature of his sacrifice, then the finger could be pointed to God of injustice, of punishing a man who didn't deserve it. It's the very fact that he took my sins, and he took my iniquities, and all my perversity, and he confessed them to God as though they were his, and God punished him instead of me. And thus the full weight of my guilt was dealt with in the sacrificial death of Christ. And the cry goes up from the sinless offering. Finished. But in Hebrews chapter 10, he's the priest. The priest who officiates at the altar. And every priest standeth daily ministering and ministering oftentimes the same sacrifices that would never take away sins. It was absolutely futile. Absolutely futile. The best it could do was provide atonement. The best it could do was see that those sins were covered. But thank God this priest undertook a work that saw a sacrifice made. Now please don't waste your time arguing on forums or in any other place. Don't waste your time arguing where the comma is. This man offered one sacrifice for sins forever and he sat down. The sacrifice is forever and his sitting down is forever as far as sacrifice is concerned. So waste, don't waste your breath. Use it for something intelligent. There's a work done that will never ever need to be repeated. 
And thank God you and I are as ready for heaven as we shall ever be, except for the fact that these bodies need to be changed. That's all. Now, to lead from that into my ministry. And if the answer is sketchy, you'll forgive me for that. But if to, to uh, continue with the ministry, just turn to the scripture I've quoted from Hebrews chapter 10, first of all. Hebrews chapter 10. Do you want to turn my mic down, Dave? I'm just going to blow my nose. Don't want to wake the saints up. They're full of beef and unbelief. Hang on a sec, folks. We'll get there. This is for you, remember. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 10. It's hardly, it's difficult to know where to break into this lovely epistle, isn't it? You could do worse than just read the whole epistle this afternoon. Anyway, uh, let's just read from verse 4. Hebrews 10, verse 4 For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now, young brethren, young sisters, with all the different helps that you have uh, at your fingertips, quite literally, to help you study the Scriptures, study verse 5. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. This isn't the actual main subject of the ministry, so I'll be brief. There is a, there is a line of thought... <clears throat> And in fact, I must uh, tell you, without telling tales out of school, that it is still alive and well amongst some of the older believers in Scotland. There is a line of thought that the Lord Jesus took no part of Mary when he came into, into this world. And the reason that very good and gracious and godly Christians, the reason why some of those dear believers hold that view is because they feel it, it shores up and bolsters the truth of the sinlessness of Christ. But you see, in, in attempting to strengthen the idea of the sinless perfection of Christ, they are detracting from the equally essential truth of the vital, genuine, real humanity of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to make a very clear statement. And it's this, that if the Lord Jesus took no part of Mary, then you and I are still waiting for a Redeemer. We don't have a Savior if he was not truly and genuinely the seed of the woman. They would point to this scripture, you see, and they say, well, a body hast thou prepared me, and without being indelicate or in any way bringing these things down to the language of the world, what they are effectively saying was that Mary was nothing more than a surrogate womb. That a body was implanted into Mary somehow, uh, and she was the incubator for a specially prepared body. Now, my dear brethren and sisters, that is utterly and 100% wrong. What was 
supernatural what was of God in the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus was his conception. And his conception was through the Spirit of God who overshadowed Mary and the power of the highest came upon her and the one who is the father of spirits through the Holy Spirit engendered life in the womb of Mary. Again, without being indelicate, but in order to be precise, it was the ovum of Mary that eventually, through the normal process of gestation, brought the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. It is essential that he be of the seed of the woman. So what does it mean, a body hast thou prepared me? Now this is where you're going to take up your concordance and your lexicon. And you're going to trace through a word that uh, in the Greek language it's the word katartizo and you can trace it through, there's maybe 13, 14 different ways in which that Greek word is translated in your New Testament. For example, we were speaking about the Lord calling uh, the disciples. And in Mark chapter 1, remember as he walked on the shore, they were mending their nets. And when you check that reference, you'll find the Greek word karatitso. When you read, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll find Paul's concern that the unity of the assembly is affected by fault lines beneath the surface because some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And he said, I, I pray that you will be perfectly joined together. Karatizo. Now, as you study your Bible and you go back to see the words that the Spirit of God actually used, you will sometimes find that, that to, our, uh, to our natural language, the, the, our mother tongue, whatever that might be, unless it's Greek, you, you will find that sometimes you think, what on earth is the commonality between this verse and that? What commonality is there between disciples mending their nets and a body being prepared in verse 5 of Hebrews 10? Well, as I say, it's not the bulk of the ministry, so let me cut to the, the, the chase. You will find when you make a note of all those different references side by side, and that's what you need to do, write them down. There's your word. Write down every place in the New Testament where it appears. Write down the references. And what you're now looking for, with the help of the Spirit of God, you're looking for a definition, just in your own mind, you're looking for a definition of that word, which when it is slotted into any of those references, will make sense. You follow that? See that? This is probably the way you study anyway. I hope it is. So you're going to take this word that is translated in so many different English ways and you're going to say, now, whatever is meant by this very rich and full word, whatever definition I come up with, it has to make sense in every one of these references. Now, here's the thought. Why were they mending the net? Well, there'd been a time when the net was brand new. And in the process of time and of use, the net has become snagged on a rock or perhaps caught on a reef or, or, or a wreck, and the net has become torn. It's spoiled. And so when they're mending the net, they are restoring the net to the condition it was in at the first. And when Paul is speaking to the uh, Corinthian believers 
about the need for practical unity. He is pointing to the unity that there is in Christ, and he's saying to them, now that's been spoiled because there's those among you saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. He says, now stop it. All the time you're doing that, you're being carnal. Fix your attention on Christ. And as you do so, you will become perfectly joined together. The unity that's been spoiled by your carnality will be restored, and the thing will come back to the condition which God intended it to be in. Now we have this lovely expression here. And it, again, it was part of our... You must think we had a long breakfast because it was part of the conversation at breakfast time again. Verse 7, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Brother Lindsay raised the question. He said, do you suppose that's the earliest recorded words of the Lord Jesus? I think they are. Words that take us right back into eternity. Lo, I come. And the last recorded words of the Lord Jesus, as far as the Bible is concerned. Behold, I come. Thank God for one who is willing to come. And so as preparation is made for him to come into the world, then it says, a body hast thou prepared me. And the thought is this, that in Christ... God was going to restore humanity to what he had always intended it to be. Humanity was spoiled and ruined and marred when Adam sinned. Is God going to be deterred from his first purpose? Not at all. He's going to bring a whole process, a whole uh, purpose into being that will see humanity gloriously restored in Christ. When I want to know about God, I look at Christ. For he is God manifest in flesh. That's why he's called Son of God. His whole character is that of God. He had a title for himself, it was Son of Man. And quite simply, when I want to know anything about what in God intends man to be, or humanity to be, I look at Christ. He's Son of God, and he's Son of Man. God in all his fullness. Man in all the fullness that God intended for him. So this verse in Hebrews chapter 10 is teaching me. A body hast thou prepared me that God in Christ was going to restore humanity to what he always intended it to be. And that, of course, is what Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17 and, and the parallel passages, Mark 9, Luke 9, that's when the Lord was transfigured on the mount and the glory burst through and his clothing was made redundant. It wasn't the glory of deity that those men were looking upon. It was the glory of humanity. He veiled that glory too, you know. He veiled the glory of deity in flesh. And he veiled the glory of humanity in humility. At the end of Genesis 2, Adam and his wife Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. The reason? They were clothed in glory. Glory and shame are opposites. You've only to read 1 Corinthians 11 to see that. There was no shame because they were clothed in glory. But the moment he sinned, the glory departed. For all have sinned in Adam and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory that God intended man to display cannot be displayed in fallen man. But Peter, James and John just caught a glimpse on the mount. They had a lovely view 
of the glory of perfect humanity shining out of the Christ of God. It's how he will be in millennial days. And Peter, Peter, bless him, he knew that. And that's why he said, let us build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for thee. That's, by the way, as we're reading. Verse number six. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come, to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will... That is, he said in verse 9, I come to do thy will, O God. By the which will, that is, the will of God, verse 10, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So now here's a truth of sanctification. We have been sanctified, it's through the will of God, and it's through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We read and have quoted the verses of his one sacrifice, and it says in verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever, he's made complete for all time and eternity, them that are sanctified. There's our word again. But then when we come further down the chapter, verse 28, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now, so long as you didn't have too big a lunch. By the way, I never tasted sausage so good. They talk about the great British banger. And I'm uh, partial to the odd great British banger, as you can imagine. Well, I never tasted sausages as nice as those I had at lunchtime. I thought they were excellent. What's that got to do with this? Can't just remember. Anyway, they were very, very good sausages. Um, sanctification. Wherewith you were sanctified. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So, here we've got these, this same word, sanctified. And it's used very clearly in the first two occasions of a position into which we've been brought. Do you see that? So, for example, verse 10, here it is. By the which will, the will of God, we, we who are believers in the Lord Jesus, are sanctified. That's a positional thing. It's nothing to do with us. It's something God has done with us and for us. He's sanctified us to himself. And it's through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. It's a work that's been done for us and with us by God. We're sanctified, we're set apart for him. But verse 29, 
There's a person deserving of punishment, which is very grave, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Now, again, younger brothers and sisters, as you're studying your Bibles, there's two particular words I would suggest that you must always, always check the context of. The first is salvation. The word salvation. For example, in the Philippian epistle, Paul tells them, work out your own salvation. And if you simply took that out of context, you'd have a salvation by works. But when you read it in its context, he says, now look, you Philippians have got a problem. Your unity is being spoiled because you've got two sisters at loggerheads. They're not in agreement one with the other. Now, the way to deal with that problem is for you all to have the mind of Christ, is for you to get these sisters back into fellowship one with the other, and so he gives practical instruction. So he says to them, now look, I've told you what the problem is, and I've given you the solution, now work out your own salvation from that difficulty. Work out your own deliverance from that local difficulty. It's got nothing to do with salvation of the soul. You must read the word in its context. Sanctification is something, again, that needs to be read in its context. Now, the the way that we would often put it is like this. Four particular aspects of sanctification. Number one is, is what we might call preparatory sanctification. And the thought of the word there is that that the Spirit of God puts a person in a position of particular favor. He puts them in a position of particular favor, of favor that is not generally enjoyed by everybody else. Understand that, you'll understand 1 Corinthians 7. That the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. The fact that his wife is now saved puts that man in a position of particular favor because he's now got a witness of the gospel in his own home. See that? So that preparatory sanctification, it's a work of God and it puts a person in a position of favor. That's the third reference we read in Hebrews chapter 10. The the blood by which they were sanctified... That is, they were put in a position of particular favor. You go back to Hebrews chapter 6, and what you will find there, and it puzzles many, is that there are those who are partakers of the heavenly gift, uh, and they have tasted of the power of the age to come, and all this kind of thing, and then they're warned that if they fall back from that, there's no further way in which they can be saved. And people scratch their heads and say, well, are these folks saved or not? Well, the answer is they're not. They're not saved. But they have been the recipients, the objects, the subjects of preparatory sanctification. The Spirit of God has had dealings with them. And he's illuminated their souls as to the uh, truth of the old covenant being brought to an end, of Christ being the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of sinners. The Spirit of God has illuminated them. They understand fully the claims of God upon them. And he says to them, now, if you go back from this, there's no more sacrifice for sin. It also is the death knell 
to the Calvinistic teaching of irresistible grace. The grace of God can be resisted. And the Spirit of God, he might even be doing it today, he might even do it as my brother John preaches later. The Spirit of God may well bring a person to conviction of their need as a sinner and a realization more clearly than they ever knew before that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. That's a, that's a sanctifying work. It's preparatory to salvation. But it can be resisted. And maybe, God forbid, but it may be that a dear soul tonight would come under conviction and choose to go out of this place unsaved. Tragedy, though, that would be beyond description. So listen now to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. He says of believers, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's massive. That's huge. It's telling me that the three persons of the Godhead who were instrumental in the creation of a universe were instrumental in the salvation of my soul. Because God is always seen, the Father is seen as the architect of divine purpose. And what he designs, the Son brings into being. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made. And that which the Father designs and the Son brings into being, the Spirit of God energizes. And the three persons of the Godhead work together. And they did it in the universe. God planned it. The Lord Jesus brought it all into being by the word of his power and upholds it in the same way. And then the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep and the whole thing was wonderfully energized. And then Peter described in the book of the Acts as an ignorant fisherman, brings in this startling truth by the Spirit of God. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, don't be afraid of that truth. Don't be afraid of the truth that we were individually chosen by God unto salvation. The Bible teaches it. It teaches it as clearly as it teaches human responsibility for the obedience of faith and obedience to the gospel. And with deep respect, my fellow brother and sister, you will never, ever rationalize the two things. This is where we come back to yesterday's ministry and the need to submit our intellect to God and to the Spirit of God. Don't try and rationalize what the Spirit of God cannot himself rationalize for us. He puts, he puts statements side by side in our Bibles. All that the Father hath given me shall come unto me. Is that a statement of divine sovereignty? Of course it is. And the very next statement is, And him that cometh unto me. I will in no wise cast out. He takes a statement of divine sovereignty and a statement of human responsibility and speaking reverently, the Spirit of God says, now that's the best I can do for you. Because of the limitations of your mind and the limitations of your thinking. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, No man knoweth the Father save the Son. 
No man knoweth the Son but the Father. No man knoweth the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. If he doesn't reveal himself, you'll never know him. It's a statement of sovereignty. What's the next verse say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Spirit of God says now, there's a statement that shows you that everything's under divine control. And there's a statement that says men are responsible for their actions. And you put the two things together and you believe them both and don't argue about them and don't go on to gospel hall forums and things like that and discuss them. You can wreck your own faith by doing that. Don't do it. Submit your intellect. Recognize and accept bright young people though you are and older people though you are Recognize this, that we are smaller than mental pygmies when it comes to the immensity of divine purpose. We live by faith, not by sight. And we simply bow in the presence of a sovereign God. And we bless him for his mercy in saving us. And we accept the two truths. And they're there in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. I was elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ah, you've got... It's easy one, that brother. Uh, God looked down through time and he knew there'd be a time I'd believe the gospel, so he chose me. No. No, no, no. no you're not getting out of it that way. That makes God's choice dependent upon yours. He saves according to purpose. And the foreknowledge of God is never about events. It's always about persons. And that which God had planned, now here it comes, the Spirit of God, we were sanctified unto obedience by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God, a divine person, He illuminated my soul. He, he showed me the truth of the Gospel. I had repeated Isaiah 53 in the Sunday school soiree just a few weeks before God saved me. I knew Isaiah 53 well enough to, 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 to quote the whole chapter. And then on August the 15th in 1963, a glorious spotlight shone upon Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for my transgressions. Something I'd known from the cradle. I now knew in all the force of divine illumination. And I realized that that blessed man had given his life to save me. And that was the night God in his grace saved my soul. It wasn't because I was smart. It wasn't because I was clever. It was because God had mercy upon me. And I could have resisted that. I could have ignored that. You will not find that God's grace is irresistible. It can be resisted. Sadly, many have gone into a lost eternity to prove that. The moment that the Spirit of God sanctified me, it was unto obedience. Now, now that's where sin came into the world. It was a question of whether man would obey God or whether he wouldn't. And so the gospel is a question of whether man will obey God or whether he'll not. We've quoted Matthew 11. The gospel's a glorious invitation. But if we quoted Acts chapter 17, Paul preached in Athens, but God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's a question of obedience. And God doesn't set us a puzzle, and he doesn't set us a riddle, and he doesn't say, see if you can work this out. He, the Spirit of God himself takes away every distraction and every element of doubt. We're left with a crystal clear decision to make. 
Will I obey? Or will I not? Sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience. And assuming that obedience, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you probably know, you've probably been taught, that in general, in your Bible, where blood is shed, the shedding of blood, it's for the eye of God. But where blood is sprinkled, where blood is applied, it's to meet the need of man. Blood being shed satisfies divine claims. Blood being applied meets the need of the man. It's the difference between propitiation and substitution. The propitiatory work of Christ satisfied every divine claim. It meant that God in justice can move out in mercy toward a sinner. Full provision has been made for a whole world to be saved. But unless that's appropriated by faith, it's useless to the sinner. It's unto all, but it's upon all them that believe. And so it is that when the divine purpose of God is met by that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that illuminating work, the soul is led to a point of obedience. And it is that. That's man's responsibility. It's his responsibility to obey. And he can equally disobey, just as Adam did. But the soul that obeys, the obedience of faith, they know the application of the blood of Christ to the saving of their soul. Then we would speak, as we have done from Hebrews chapter 10, about what we would call not so much preparatory sanctification, but positional sanctification. What we are in Christ. Them that are sanctified. Doesn't depend on us, and nothing we ever do will change it. Thank God, the moment we were saved, we became part of those who are sanctified and set apart for God in Christ. Positional sanctification. There is then what we might call progressive sanctification. An ongoing program of things. The Lord prayed for his own in John chapter 17 to the Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them. A progressive process in the life of the Christian. A practical sanctification. You might wish to call it that. Practical sanctification. And then there is a perfect sanctification. And that's, I suppose, really the thought in 1 John 3 and verses 2 and 3. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. There is, there is a, a, a part of sanctification that is still to be fulfilled. And that's really when these bodies of humiliation, Philippians chapter 3, these bodies are changed. And this body of humiliation is fashioned like unto his own body of glory. Sanctification. The same word sanctification is also translated in our Bibles as holiness. So now, for the few minutes I've got left, I want to address quickly and simply, I hope, 
a problem which I could almost guarantee is afflicting somebody in this audience today. And in probability, it will be a Christian, probably brought up in a Christian home, and you're not at all certain that you are saved. And you probably, through a thought of shame or whatever, just feel that you couldn't ever bring it up with anybody. Well, if it puts your mind at rest at all, the man who's preaching to you now used to have awful doubts as a young man. For different reasons, actually. But um, the Lord confirmed in my own soul that I should mention something about this just in conversation over lunch. Because the dear friends with whom I was speaking were those who were saved later in life And when God saved them, boy, they knew it. The whole life changed. Now now listen very carefully, please. Very carefully now, because I don't want to be misquoted and I don't want to be misunderstood. See, when I got saved, I didn't have a conversion. Not not really. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, I was was a boy brought up in a Christian home. And... um, for the rest of my life since God saved me, I've, I've harbored an envy in my soul, which is wrong, it's completely wrong, but I've, I've harbored an envy for these dear folks whom God saved out of the excesses of drink and drugs and violence and all this kind of thing. Because there's no doubt they got saved. <laughs> Only the glorious gospel of God could, could bring a difference like that into their lives. Where a man who had a filthy mouth, the day after God saved him, his mouth was clean. And, and a terrible dependence, virtually, on, on alcohol and things like Gone. So you say, there's no doubt that man got it. He's saved, all right. Because only the gospel could do that. But what about a boy nine years old when he got saved? And so very often in the early Christian years of someone brought up in a Christian home, there are doubts. Not least because, because we know that after we got saved, we then did things that we shouldn't do. And we said things that we shouldn't say. And we were the ones who knew best that Christians didn't say and do that kind of thing. And because we were neither mature physically nor spiritually, we just kind of put two and two together and the, it added up to seven, but we didn't know that. So we just said, well... I got saved on Monday night, but here on Friday I'm doing things that I know safe people don't do. Therefore, I can't be saved. I mean, that's as clear as that, isn't it? So now you see, number one, you don't go by feelings. You don't go by feelings. The Bible shows us that there can be clear evidence, and I hope this will help somebody today, there can be clear evidence as to whether you've been saved or not. Because one thing's for absolute sure... You can't be saved and there not be a change. There's a change in something. Now, it's not a dramatic change in behavior for the obedient child brought up in a Christian home. But there is a difference made. It's just that we can't see it manifest yet. So we go back to our Bible and we say, well, all right, let's look at it. What what, what can we go to? We can go to the fact that when the Lord Jesus was here, 
he raised three people from the dead. Three people who were dead got life again and it was very evident. And so we could, um, we could go back to Mark chapter 5. We could see the miracle of Jairus' daughter being raised. And when Jairus' daughter was raised, the miracle was complete. The, the narrative doesn't need to continue, but it does. And he commanded that she should be given something to eat. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't it? Because new life will bring new appetite with it. That's what we've got to learn. New life will bring new appetite. What's your appetite like? Now, please, don't take a snapshot. For you could have a hundred snapshots of me in my Christian life and you would just say, there's no way at all that boy's ever saved. Don't take a snapshot. Look at the consistency. Look at the trend of the thing. What's your appetite? Peter tells us what the appetite should be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. How does a newborn babe desire its food? You mums and dads who've raised kids, grandparents who are raising grandkids, you know how a babe desires its food. It wakes up, stretches a bit, makes a few kind of funny noises, and then there'll be a whimper and... And you lift the baby up and you juggle it a bit and then it starts to cry. So you just get that little knuckle there and you just put it between the baby's lips for maybe four seconds. You're actually teaching that baby first of all that it's going to be conned for the rest of its life probably. But, but, but just for the moment, the baby thinks, oh, this is what I need, and, and it suckles on, and you jiggle it a little bit more, and in about 12 seconds, wow. And, I mean, it doesn't let up. It's full on. One thing is going to satisfy that child, and that's the mother's breast. It needs food. Where there's new life, there will be new appetite. Now, please, what's your appetite like? Now, you can spoil your own appetite. Your appetite should be for the good word of God. What did your mum tell you when you were smaller? No, you can't have another cookie. Your meal's ready in one hour. What's she telling you? You have another cookie now, that spoils your appetite for your main meal. Now, you young folk with all your different devices have got access to junk food for the soul more than anybody ever had before you. And they're addictive. They're addictive. If, if you wonder whether you, in your spiritual appetite, are addicted to your cell phone and all the other things that go with it, your iPad and all the apps and all this kind of stuff, if you wonder whether you have an addiction for that kind of thing, see if you can go a whole day without it. I'm talking about the recreational side of it. See if you can go a whole day without it. The two lovely young ladies were in our assembly. They're married and moved on now. Time was we would see them walk down the road with a Bible in their hand, coming to meeting. Great testimony. Now they just bring a cell phone. It's very addictive. You will waste hours and hours and hours of your life, years of your life, on this kind of thing. Social media. 
So you just had a nice cup of coffee in Starbucks. So what? So what? I mean, really, it is very, very trivial, isn't it, when we're wasting time and resources and all that kind of thing. What's your appetite like? There was a, there was a young man, you'll read about him in Luke chapter 7, the Lord raised him from the dead. His mum was a widow. And when the Lord raised him from the dead, the miracle was complete. The narrative didn't need to continue. But it did. And it tells us, and the Lord restored him again to his mother. Can you imagine how she would have greeted that boy? Can you imagine how he would have greeted her? It just simply shows me that, that with new life, there doesn't just come a new appetite, there comes a new affection for things. Peter tells us that. He doesn't only tell us about appetite, that we'll desire it as a newborn babe desires its milk, but he'll say, see the Lord Jesus, that cornerstone that the builders rejected? That rejected man, he's precious now to God's people. If you find, in regard to your affections, if you find that consistently you prefer the company of your unsaved friends to the company of the people of God, there's a problem. Because if you truly belong to the Lord, you belong to the Lord's family. And there will be a genuine filial affection for the people of God. I know you're here this weekend. It's lovely to see you. I'm talking now about the regular weeks of your life. If you, pro if you rather would have the company of the ungodly than the company of God's people, consistently, you've got a problem. There was another person whom the Lord raised from the dead, and that was Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, wonderful, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth, bound hand and foot in his grave clothes. Wonderful miracle, end of story. No, it's not. Loose him, let him go. Take away all the things that were associated with the grave. Take them away. New activity. Peter says, you know how you measure it? He says, you measure it by the fact that as a royal priest, you now go forth to declare the virtues in this dark world. You declare the virtues of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What about your activities? Young brother, young sister. Do you know, I don't know about this country, I don't, so I can speak freely. I tell you what, I'm absolutely appalled in my own country at the number of young men, 20s into their 30s, and they're wasting their time playing stupid computer games. Now, if that applies, in God's name, take up the challenge. Put the thing away. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. If it's a problem to you, get rid of it. Pray about it. Tell the Lord in earnestness you're going to get rid of that thing off your phone and get rid of it. Because we, we're in a day, just like the Hebrew epistle, we're in a day when we need men. Physically men. Spiritually men. 
to stand before God's people and lead them. And we've got men in their 20s and 30s and they're no more than children. These things will sap the very spiritual vitality out of you. And you'll suddenly wake up when you're 40 years old if the Lord hasn't come and if you're spared. And you'll find that you're absolutely hollow when it comes to spiritual things. And the very moment you should be stepping up to the plate to preach and to teach and to lead the people of God, you've got absolutely nothing except a huge score on angry birds. Well done. Oh, my dear brother, my dear sister, this truth of sanctification is real. God has saved you. And the will of God is your sanctification. First Thessalonians. Will we wake up? Will we face the challenge of it? Our brother's going to be challenging sinners in the gospel shortly. Well, I always have a burden to challenge saints. Let's get real about the thing. Let's understand why God saved us. And let's go in for a sanctified life where my appetite and my affections and my activities are those of a person who has been truly born again of the Spirit of God. Put away those things that are sapping your spiritual strength. And make your mind up that you're going to be a man or a woman of God. You put God to the test in these things. God won't mind. I speak reverently. Oh God, I've been challenged in this conference. I know there's things in my life that aren't really becoming a child of God. Oh God, if you give me the courage and the strength to put them out of my life, will you make it up to me in spiritual value? And you have a loving Father who wants nothing more than your spiritual good. And I promise you in his name, he'll make it up to you all right. And he'll give you such a fresh glimpse and such fresh views concerning his beloved Son that you'll prove the truth of the little chorus that we used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Dear brother, forgive me, I stole some of your time. May God bless his word.